Go ahead and take a seat, please. If somebody's looking for this paper later, I'm going to put it there. I'm not sure. Actually, I should make sure there's not a... Somebody wave your hand if that's supposed to be a note I'm supposed to read. All right, I'm going to pretend that's not for me then. I still have a vivid memories of a conversation that I had with a guy named Joel. Uh, Joel is from Alatau, Papua New Guinea, and we were talking about the differences between their mindset of the world and a Western mindset of the world. And so Joel said, well, let, let, let me illustrate it for you. I said, imagine that there's a car accident, and, and the police come, and they're going to investigate the cause. They want to find out why did the accident happen. He said, the police will come in, and they will find out that the brakes had failed, and then for the police, that will be the end of the case. They figured out what caused the accident. And Joel asked me, he said, is that right? Is that what would happen? I said, absolutely. He said, well, the difference is in New Guinea... If there were a car accident, we would want to know why, and we don't want to know why simply that the brakes failed. We want to know why did that person's brakes fail. Out of all the thousands of cars on the road, why that person? Why that particular time, and why that particular car? Was there punishment? Was there, was there something happening outside in the larger world? And that conversation illustrates the differences between how we see the relationship in this material world with what we can call things beyond. Now, I know that there are some people in this country, maybe some people even who are here this morning, who don't believe in anything beyond the material world. This morning, that's an important conversation for us to have at some point, but this morning we're going to talk to those who believe that there are things beyond, specifically those who call the things beyond God. And the interesting thing is, even once we believe that there is a God who is beyond this world, people have very different understandings about the nature of God's relationship with this world. I've kind of summarized three main ways people understand God's relationship to the material world. First of all, some people believe that God remains outside the material world. That God has made the world, and then He allows the world to move in any direction that it wishes. Cause and effect. Laws of nature. All of those things will determine simply how the world Turns out because God remains distant and apart from the world he made. Some people believe that God is at work within the material universe. That, that God is, is at the center of things, but he's only a part of the forces that are at work in this world. God can influence, but he cannot guarantee certain outcomes. And the third perspective is that God rules over the material world. And that God is intimately at work within this universe. This, of course, is the Christian, the Jewish worldview. That God rules over the world, but he also interacts deeply in the world. God can uphold the natural cause and effect of things, or God can intervene in the natural order in what we would call a miracle. God can be at work directly by his hand influencing things, or God can be at work indirectly by allowing things to play out in the ways that he wishes. But either way, God is involved in the world and seeing the world moving towards a certain end. The, the difference between each of these perspectives is just simply how intimately you think God is involved in the everyday, normal events of our world. And some people have been asking the question of the church. Has the church been so focused on secularism outside its doors, about the people who don't believe in things beyond, that we have put down our guard and slowly like dripping water, drip, 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 a form of secularism has moved into the church. 
This is what is called functional secularism. Functional, functional secularism is the belief that, that God is there, but, but God's not really deeply involved in the end, events of our life. That the God is distant and uninvolved, and, and, and by and large, most everything that happens, it happens apart from God's interaction. And whatever you think about functional secularism, you probably have wrestled in certain ways with it. Imagine a family member ends up getting ready to have heart surgery, and you ask people to pray. And people pray, and you pray, and yet at the back of your mind, there is a little bit of comfort knowing that the surgeon doing the surgery is the best in the nation. And you say, well, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to pair my faith in the surgeon and my faith in God. What do I do about both of those things? And as you're wrestling with it, you get the news that the surgery went well. Everything is great. And then you begin to wonder, well, how much credit do I give God for this? How much credit do I give the surgeon for it? And if God was involved, was God involved directly? Or was God involved indirectly working through the surgeon? And, and yet, are you going to say that to anyone? No, you'll probably just say to everyone, praise God. He answered my prayer. And yet we wrestle with the exact nature of the way that God is involved and interacts in our world today. I think that our text this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8 through 12, 6, is going to give us a framework that's going to help us to explore the relationship of how God is at work in our natural world. But since it's been a few weeks, we had Scott here uh, last week. We talked about prophecy the week before. I'm going to just take a minute and catch us up on the movement of Isaiah since Isaiah chapter 7. There were these two nations. There was Israel and there was Aram. And they formed an alliance. And they said they're going to go to war against Judah. They're going to come down to Jerusalem. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, is told by Isaiah, don't worry about them. The attack is not going to be successful. And Ahaz says, I don't know about that. And he's asked to trust in God. And instead he says, you know what? Rather than trusting in God, I'm going to call the Assyrians. And we're going to make an alliance that's going to help protect us against this coming battle. And Isaiah says, well, there is a sign then. In light of the fact that you have agreed to do this, the first sign will be that uh, Jerusalem will not be defeated. God's going to keep his promise. But once Jerusalem is not defeated and the Assyrians are part of that, the Assyrians are going to turn against Judah. And so it is in this context that we begin now in Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. The Lord sent word against Jacob, and it fell on Israel. And all the people knew it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. But in pride and arrogance of heart, they said, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. I'm going to just remind you of one thing. Israel is mentioned by different words. It will be called Israel or Jacob or Ephraim or Samaria. All of those are pointing to this northern kingdom. Israel had a twofold problem. Number one, it had a certain view of God that God was somehow viewed as weak, domesticated, and in many ways they thought he was sterile. That they thought that there's very little that God would be able to do against them because they thought very highly of themselves. They were proud and they were arrogant. Notice what they say there in verse 10. They're talking about rebuilding and restoring. And what they are saying is whatever God does in terms of destruction against us, guess what? We can rebuild it. If God knocks over a few bricks, we'll just put them back. If God tears down some trees, we'll just plant new ones. There's nothing that God's going to do that's going to ultimately hurt or destroy us as a people. 
God responds to their arrogance and pride in Isaiah 9, 11. So the Lord raised adversaries against them and stirred up their enemies. And there's a couple of important lessons for us in Isaiah 9 to remember about God's judgment against Israel, this northern tribe. The first is we need to recognize that God intended for his judgment to be both redemptive and restorative. Notice what uh, is said in Isaiah 9.13. The people did not turn to him who struck them or seek the Lord of hosts. So why did God do this? God did this so that they would return to him. He did this so that they would seek him. But in their, pr- their proud and their arrogant view of the world, they think, is that all you've got? I mean, if you're going to just knock down a few bricks, we can just put them back. There's no reason for us to turn to God. There's no reason for us to repent. See, God is doing this not because he loves to punish the people. God's not like a kid who catches a bug and he just likes to see it suffer as it pulls off wings or legs or anything like that. God's more like a surgeon who says, if we don't amputate this leg, it's going to mean the death of the entire body. The second thing that we see here is when sins continue, punishment increases. Four times in this section of scripture, it is said, for all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. Exodus 34, 6 says that God is slow to anger, which the people misunderstood. The people believe the fact that God is slow to anger means that God can't do anything that we can't fix afterwards. That the God is slow to anger means that God's going to just topple over a little little tower and then we'll have to rebuild it. And that's as much that God has. Instead, what God is communicating is he says, I will not bring a strong judgment against you until it's been proven that you will not return when I bring a lesser judgment. And when the people do not return, the intensity of the judgment increases. It's like the parent who calls their kid to dinner, says time to eat, and they keep saying it louder and louder and louder until one of the kids says, okay, because you know they've heard it. And so what God is going to do is he's going to increase his judgment until the people have heard that it is he who is calling them back. God does not turn away from his anger until the people turn away from their sin. So Isaiah chapter 9, 8 through 10, 4, Isaiah is telling the southern kingdom of Judah, about what has, is going to happen to the northern tribe of Israel. And the question for Judah is this, what lessons are we supposed to learn by what God is doing in the northern tribes? And in fact, what Isaiah is doing is he is preparing them for an after-action review. If you've ever heard of this, the U.S. Navy SEALs, every time they complete a mission afterwards, they go back and they have an after-action review. And they're going to ask themselves several questions. What went well? What didn't? And what should the team do differently next time? And what you're going to do differently next time is based on what you think went wrong the first time. So I want to imagine you're invited to do an after-action review. You're Judah. You've just watched the destruction of the northern tribes of Israel. And you say, what's the lesson for us? And there's going to be two, I think, key directions of the lesson. There's going to be one group who I think are going to offer what we'll call a secular explanation. And this is the reason why they believe Israel was destroyed. Israel made a strategic error when she partnered with Aram. The military was too weak. Ahaz, on the other hand, made a better strategic decision by partnering with Assyria. And so if you look at this as military strategy, and you look at this from a secular view, the conclusion will be, the lesson is we need to make better alliances because our future depends on. 
So is that the message? Is that what the people are supposed to learn? The second group, the second idea of what we could take away from this destruction is that Israel was not too weak militarily, but she was unfaithful to God. She was unresponsive to his word, and she spurned his judgments. And if that is the case, the lesson, and this is the lesson Isaiah is giving us, is that the people of Judah need to honor God. They need to fear God. They need to keep his commandments. And so if you were there, which would you say? Would you say this is an issue of military strength or this is an issue of one's relationship with God? The secular view says it's a military issue. Isaiah says this is about how God works in the world. It's a God-centered issue. Then in Isaiah 10, 5 through 19, the focus now shifts to judgment that is coming against Assyria. Isaiah 10, 5, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the club in their hands is my fury. God makes it clear that Assyria is simply a tool or a vessel in his hands. So he says, whenever this, whenever this stick strikes you, Israel, you need to realize it is not Assyria striking you, but it is God himself who is striking you. But poor Assyria, Assyria has no idea that it's simply a tool. In Isaiah 10, 15, the question is asked, shall the axe vaunt itself over the one who wields it? No, the axe is only ever going to do what the one who wields it wants it to do. Or he asks of the rod, should the rod be raised against the one who lifts it? No, the rod can't hit you because you're the one who is controlling it. And what Assyria has not realized is it was simply a tool to be used in God's hands. And because of that, now a word of judgment comes against Assyria. Isaiah 10, 12 through 13. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the arrogant boasting of the king of Assyria and his haughty pride. For he said, by my strength of hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I have removed the boundaries of the people and have plundered their treasures. Like a bull, I have brought them down, those who sat on thrones. So the core spiritual issue as to the reason of the destruction of Israel was what? Pride and arrogance. Now we're told that Assyria is going to be destroyed. And why are they going to be destroyed? Because of pride and arrogance. And in this context, pride and arrogance is the refusal to acknowledge the work that God is doing in the world. We could say it is the secular way of understanding how the world works. Something happens by God's hand and you say, no, it happened by my hand. Or God intervenes and he brings about his plans and his purposes and you think somehow you were the ones who did it. It's giving too much credit to the human actors and not enough credit to the God who directs the entire scene. The proud believe that whatever good there is in the world, we must be the architects of that goodness. The proud believe that whatever happens in the world, we must be the author of those events. And do you ever struggle with wondering exactly how God is at work? Exactly who should get credit? What is the basis of the outcome? So God brings judgment. We know clearly against Israel, God is bringing judgment against Assyria. And yet embedded in this is a message of a third nation that will experience God's judgment. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 6 says, Against a godless nation, I send him. That's referring to the king of Assyria. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take, spoil, seize, and, spl- and plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. 
And when, God, when, when Isaiah says God's going to bring judgment against a godless nation, you can imagine Judah saying, hooray, amen, encouraging that message. It would be like there being a person sitting down on the front row as the preacher is preaching. And as he sits there, the preacher says, God's judgment's coming against the wealthy. And the person says, amen. And God's judgment's coming against those who are wearing black suits. And he's wearing a black suit. And he says, amen. And God's judgment's coming against those with ties that are red polka dot. And he's got a red polka dot tie. Amen. And God's judgment's coming against those driving Lamborghinis. And the man sitting there in the black suit and the red polka dot tie drives a Lamborghini. He doesn't say amen anymore because he realized the message has been against him. What, it, what Judah will first assume is that this is a message against the northern tribe. And yet they come to find out very quickly that the godless nation is not defined by a certain group of people who, who verbally protest things about God. The godless nation is determined by how people view the relationship of God at work in their world. The judgment will come. Isaiah has already told us in Isaiah 2, 17. The haughtiness of people shall be humbled. And the pride of everyone shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Anyone who tries to take the seat of God will be brought low so that God alone will be exalted. By the time we get to the end of Isaiah 10, 19, it's clear God's judgment is going to come on Israel, the northern kingdom, on Assyria, and then also on Judah, the southern kingdom. And all are punished for the same reason, because of their pride in the presence of God. But as, been, as it has been happening throughout all of Isaiah, Isaiah is never content to leave us with a message of judgment. He always touches on the reason for hope. And as has been throughout Isaiah, hope is always rooted in something that God will do. As I think about this future, I think about something a guy named Jürgen Moltmann said. He said that there's two ways to speak about the future. He uses this Latin term futurum. He says that the future can be the sum total of all the causes and effects of the actions today. So one way to, to say what's going to happen as a future is you look at well, how people are behaving. That's predictive of what the future is going to look like. That's a secular way of speaking about the future. The second way of understanding the future is Adventus, which is this idea of coming. And in Adventus, the future is what God makes whenever he decides to intercede. That there's going to be a direction that human history is going to go until God shows up and then it's going to change its trajectory. When Isaiah speaks of future, he is speaking of Adventus. When God shows up, when God moves into the neighborhood, when God comes, when God intervenes, when God intercedes, the future is going to change. And it's going to change as a result of these two actions of God. Number one, a remnant. Isaiah 10, 20 through 22. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on the one who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though you people Israel were like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. When Isaiah speaks about a remnant, the people will always hear the two pieces. This is good news and this is bad news. The bad news is this. The people will be brought from a number as many as the sand in the seashore. Think about the promise of Abraham. They're going to be brought down to a very, very small percentage they will go through a time of judgment. That's the bad news. But remnant also has embedded in it good news. And the good news of the remnant is that they will avoid absolute 
destruction. That God will intercede on their behalf and he will bring some of the people forward as God's gracious action. Isaiah talked about this in Isaiah 1.9 when he said, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Had God not intervened and interceded, there would be none of us, nothing left. But God is gracious in that he brings a remnant forward. The second source of hope for Isaiah is rooted in Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. See, until God sends his anointed leader, the trajectory of human history is going to continue. See, people share this similar problem that the king of Assyria had. Remember what the king of Assyria said? He said, all this happened by my wisdom, for I have understanding. And as long as we are relying on ourselves to bring about a future, as long as we're relying on ourselves to do something, we're going to, at the end of the day, if it's successful, who are we going to congratulate? Ourselves. I did it. I'm amazing. And the difference is that God will send one and he will function differently. Notice what it says of the coming Messiah. He will not trust in himself or any human wisdom or power. Instead, he has the spirit of God, a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of understanding. So when the Messiah speaks of anything successful, he is going to attribute it to the spirit of wisdom that was given to him, to the spirit of understanding that was given. This Messiah will not be arrogant because he knows God has led him. He will be dependent on God. And when this Messiah comes, Isaiah paints a picture of what will happen, beginning in Isaiah eleven six. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion, and the fatling together, and the little children shall lead them. This is Isaiah's way of saying this sin-infested world will begin to reverse. And the curse that has brought enmity and strife, it's going to begin to be undone. Now, In case you're wondering who this person might be, I'm going to read a text from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 16 and following. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came out from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and a lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit of the Lord poured out on his chosen Messiah, the man we know as Jesus. And then Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12 will look forward to what to Isaiah's readers is a future day. He begins by saying, you will say in that day. The day he is referring to is the day when the Messiah comes. Those people who live in the days where the Messiah has been sent to his people, this is what we are told they will say. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you are angry with me, your anger turned away and you comforted me. What Isaiah is saying is that these are our words, people who have lived after the Messiah has come. That we are the ones who are to give thanks because though God was angry with us, his anger has been turned away. And you might say, well, how does God's anger been turned away? Remember for them, God's anger did not turn away. You find this in the language of 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. 
In this is love, not that we love God, that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You might have a translation that will use a big fancy word, propitiation. And a propitiation is defined as averting the wrath of God by offering a gift. In other words, as God's judgment is poured out in the New Testament, it is not poured out on the heads of those of us who deserve it. God's judgment is poured out on his own son. So that those of us who recognize and submit to the ways of Jesus Christ, we are protected from the anger of God because of the blood of his own son. And so this is what Isaiah says should be the words of those of us who have received the blessing of the Messiah. So Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, and I would like for us to read this collectively because Isaiah says, these are going to be your words. So these are our words. Let's read this together as a congregation. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. Why do we trust? Why are we not afraid? Because God has made it clear that he rules over the material universe. And he's shown us time and time again that he is intimately involved in every event of our lives. God is at work to accomplish his ends. So we live by faith because we believe in the one who knows the end of human history and he knows how to get it there. If you're not a fan of spoiler alerts, you're going to need to plug your ears because I'm going to give you a massive spoiler alert. At the end, God wins. That's the whole message of the Bible. And so the decision is simply this. Will you find yourself on the side of God, the side of victory, or will you choose to turn yourself against God? And as we've seen throughout history, that God will take those who are proud, those who are arrogant, and he will find a way to humble them so that one day, every knee eventually will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And we go from here, knowing that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you have any kind of a need, uh, I guess Mitch is the only elder here today, so Mitch will be back there, I'll be back there. But if you need somebody to pray with, you want to talk about where you are in your relationship with God, I invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together.